One of the things that I've always loved ever since I was a, a little kid is a fireworks show. You know, whether I was in the side of my parents' yard shooting off mortars and uh, black cats and bottle rockets or, or going to the Alcoa Duck Pond and seeing, uh, you know, the, the bigger show put on, I couldn't help but have a smile on my face. You know, as the shells explode in the sky with like a, uh, you know, a shower of sparks and then you feel that, that concussive boom hit you in the chest. It's something I just I enjoyed, I loved it. You know, I loved seeing the, the beauty and the power on display. But if there's one thing that's bad about a fireworks show is there, there's a lot of waiting before. As a kid, I, I felt like it was never going to get dark enough for the fireworks to actually happen. I can remember asking my parents, can we do it now? Is it, is it time now? And they're like, it's not, it's not dark enough yet. Or you'd be sitting there waiting, you know, waiting in silence for it to happen at the bigger shows. Be silent. You're like, I don't know when it's going to happen. One minute silence, the next sound and motion, and everything's kicking off. And it's spectacular. At the beginning of Luke, we see that there's been people who have been in this time of waiting. There's this yearning for God to move. Even as, as they've been waiting, they've been waiting for years for, for God to act with eager anticipation for God to finally move and send a Savior. When's it going to happen? What's, what's going to take place? How, how will it happen? What will it be like? That's one type of person. They're, they're longing and waiting. And possibly there's another group of people. Maybe they've waited so long that they've actually given up hope. Maybe that's you this morning. And if it is you, I have good news. Namely, that the waiting that has been broken by God's promised activity. In God's perfect timing, he sends Gabriel to deliver a message to a humble young woman in a very small town. This is also a message of beauty and of power. And it's the best news that has ever been given, that the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords is coming to Mary. And so as we spend some time in Luke chapter one today, I hope that we will see this theme very clearly. That because our God is a promise-keeping God, because he, he always does what he says, we can trust him even when things seem impossible to us. Because he keeps his promises, we can trust him even when things seem impossible. And as we walk through our passage, we're going to break it down this way. In verses 26 through 33, we're going to see that Mary receives good news. And then in verses 34 and 35, we will see that Mary ask a question, a very good question that, that makes sense in light of her circumstances. And lastly, verses 36 through 38, we will see that Mary responds with faith. And so brothers and sisters, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we spend time in his word. So Father, Lord, this is your word. And this is, Lord, a word for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would encourage us. Wherever we find ourselves in that waiting, whether we were discouraged and, 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 and we're having a hard time seeing what you might be doing. Lord, we're eagerly anticipating you doing uh, you know, fantastic things as we've already experienced. Lord, wherever we find ourselves, would you help us? Would you help us to, to see the glory of you sending your son? Father, would you help us to have tremendous hope because you always keep your word? Your promises never fail. Even when it seems impossible, nothing is impossible for you. 
And so, Lord, lead us, help us, encourage us, challenge us, and help us have hope in Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 26, we hear these words. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So as we begin looking at verses 26 through 33, we hear that Mary receives good news. The news that is the best that's ever been delivered here. In verse 26, Luke tells us that during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel is given a second mission to give a second message to another unlikely recipient. If you remember, he delivered one last week to Zechariah as well. Something extraordinary must be happening if God is sending Gabriel on these back to back missions. And it is extraordinary. Luke tells us that Gabriel goes to a city in the middle of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph who was of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And at the time of the announcement, we, we believe that Mary was probably somewhere between 12 and, and about 15 years old. She would have likely been very poor you know, she was from the town of Nazareth, a small town which was far from the center of influence and power in Israel. In fact, Nathaniel, when Philip comes to him and says, hey, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It seemed impossible that the Messiah would come from this nowhere town, a town not even mentioned one time in the Old Testament. And yet, as humble as Mary's circumstances are, she is given the highest honor of any woman who has ever lived because she has been chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, this long-awaited deliverer. He is coming to her and to all of us through Mary. And this was a part of God's plan to bring him into these humble circumstances. 
And so as Gabriel talks to Mary, he says this. He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Why is this an important statement that the angel declares? And why is it important that we would understand what he's saying and also what he's not saying? Well, I think it's because Mary is one of the most misunderstood figures in all of history. What the angel is saying here, the word favor here, comes from the same Greek word that means grace. And so by this declaration, the angel is making clear that Mary is a recipient, not a giver of God's grace. She is favored not by the things that she has done, not by any, any merit in herself, but she's favored because God has placed his grace on her. And he has chosen to give this young woman in this small town the greatest gift that's ever been given, the son of God. He gives this grace freely to her, not because she's earned it, but because he is gracious. And God shows here tremendous kindness. Martin Luther, in summarizing Gabriel's words, says it this way. I love this. He says, oh, Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has, who, no woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. What a good summary of what we see here. And I believe Mary is really helpful to us in the church today because she teaches us great things about God. She shows us that God's grace is for the humble. God's grace is for people like you and me. And he is able to do what is impossible with man. So after hearing these words from the angel, Mary is troubled. And I think rightly so. An angel has just appeared out of nowhere. Usually people are freaked out in general by angels. Remember, they always have to say, don't be afraid. But she's also recognized he's bringing an important message to her. What is he going to say? What does, it, what does it mean? And so again, he tells her, don't be afraid, just like last week. But as Gabriel speaks to, to Mary, he reassures her and reminds her for a second time in verse 30 that she has found favor or grace with God. Don't be afraid because God's grace is on you. And then he delivers good news. And I imagine that it's at this point, many years later, as Luke is probably sitting in the same room as Mary, you know, she's in a chair and he's right across from her. He's like, okay, what did the angel say? Like, what was it that he told you when he brought this message? Tell me, I want to, I want to know all about this. What, what, what happened? What were the circumstances of Jesus' birth? What did Gabriel tell you? And so, you know, he's, he's excited to hear this. And we see in verses 31 through 33, the answer. This is what Gabriel says. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The words here that Gabriel proclaims, reminds us of a promise that God made to David regarding his kingly line, where God told David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, your throne, David, shall be established forever. And David's offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, Psalm 89, verse 36. 
So there's this, pro, uh, this promise that David is going to have a, an heir on the throne who, who is a, a greater son. But this pro, there's a problem in that it was, this was made a thousand years ago, this promise. There's a, there's a tension here that, that we need to feel as we're made to wait on the Lord. Because in the circumstances, like leading up to this, there was no Davidic king on the throne at that moment. And there hadn't been for a long time. Del Ralph Davis, who's a pastor, helps us to fill the tension a little bit by saying this. He says, this people has been under Babylonian, then Persian, then Syrian, and now Roman rule. The odds seem to be that the promise wouldn't happen. Is this the way with the promise? Had it expired? Never. God's message through Gabriel to Mary proves that he keeps his word, that he is fully trustworthy, even when we don't understand how he is going to fulfill his promises. He always keeps his word, even and especially in remarkable ways like here in the virgin birth. And so the message that's delivered is this, Mary, you will have a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Just like with the birth of John the Baptist, this is an announcement by the angel that a son is going to be, a, be born. And, and, it, and he's named by the Lord. You know, the name is given to them. First it's John, now it's Jesus. But do you remember or do you know what Jesus means? His name means Yahweh saves. What an awesome name. A name that is so fitting for Jesus. His name is a declaration of his work. He is the only one that God is going to use to finally save his people once and for all. And God is sending him to Mary. The wait is finally over. This Savior is coming. The promise that they were waiting for is now coming. It's here now. And as he continues, Gabriel says that this son will be great. If you remember back to the passage from last week where we're talking about John the Baptist's birth and, and, and what the angel was telling Zechariah, it was said of John that he was going to be great before the Lord, verse 15. But as we hear the declaration of Gabriel here, we see that he will be great. But did you notice that there's no qualifier after that? According to Philip Ryken in the Old Testament, Whenever the word great is used without qualification, it almost always refers to God himself. And so this angel is giving us a clear declaration because of the nature of who Jesus is, that he himself is great because he is God. So think about this for a moment. As Jesus is talking about, you know, John the Baptist and, and Mary, as we think about this, we're going we're to see something here. So Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he means that John has the highest privilege. He's like the last of those Old Testament prophets who actually gets to see with his own eyes the hope of Israel, where he points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He gets to see that hope with his own eyes. And so John is great in the sense that he is the forerunner to Jesus. His greatness is in his connection to the Messiah, not something innate in and of himself, but because of his connection to Jesus. And Mary, 
If you look at verse 42 of the very next section, she's described as blessed among all women. Why? Again, it's because of her role in bearing the Messiah, of being his mother. It's because, it's because she's connected to Jesus that she is described here in, in these terms of being great. And so it always goes back to the greatness comes from being connected to Jesus who truly is great. And so I want you to think about your own life. What would, it, what would you need to do in order for your life to actually matter? To leave a legacy that doesn't just last for the things that you're doing in the few years that you're alive, but to leave a legacy that lasts for eternity. What would God consider great? Well, the answer is, the way to greatness is by how much we love, how much we serve, how much we enjoy and are connected to Christ Jesus by faith. This is what matters above all else. You see, the path to greatness Jesus says is by being a servant of Christ. Luke 9, 48, he who is least among you all is the one who's great. And so brothers and sisters, if greatness comes through our connection with Christ, then we should be greatly encouraged because by our faith in Jesus, we are fully connected to him. He fills us with his spirit. His spirit empowers us, encourages us, equips us, leads us, you know, convicts us of sin, enables us to do all of the things that he calls us to do, including to preach and teach and to make disciples and all of the other things that he wants us to do. So by faith, we are connected to Christ. And by faith, we have a meaning and a purpose that lasts, you know, the things that we do last beyond just this life, but have value into the one to come. But his point, Gabriel's point, is that Jesus is great in himself. Because he's God. There's no one higher. There's no one better. There's no one truer, no one wiser, no one stronger, no one better, no one as, as, as perfect and righteous and holy. There's no king that's, that's elevated above him. He is the greatest. And this is the one that Mary has the privilege to bear. This son. And not only is he great, but Gabriel says that he will be called the son of the most high. David loved using this term of God, the most high God. You see this in, in Psalm 7, verse 17, where he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. And so here we see that Gabriel is given this privilege that this son who is coming, who is great, is the son of the most high God. He is declaring that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, has come to put on flesh and dwell among us. He's come to rescue us. He's come to ransom us. This is the declaration he's making known that God is sending his son to save the world. He is the son of the most high. And he's gonna sit on the throne of his father, David, and will rule over the household of Jacob forever. God hasn't forgotten his promises. He hasn't forgotten the promises he made to David and Israel to provide them a king to sit on the throne. But there's times that this promise might look like it would falter. It never did. For at the right time, in God's timing, he sends his son as a king to rule over the house of Jacob. 
But you know, Jesus is a better king than David. David was a great king. He was a sinner. Jesus is a king uh, that's like David, but perfect in every single way. All of the ways that matter, he's better than David. He is the true king who, who has a heart after God's heart, who perfectly obeys, perfectly fulfills all that he is called to do by the Father. And he lives, he lives to do the Father's will. So Jesus here is David's heir, as Luke is reminding us with the declaration of Gabriel. And he makes this statement of his kingdom, there will be no end. And as we think about that reality, that there is a kingdom of Christ that will not end, I think we long for it all the more when we see that the kingdom that we live in now, this counterfeit kingdom, is crumbling in different ways. Our society is, is, is tearing apart in, in certain ways. We, we see the need of a savior. We feel the longing for a kingdom and a king who is perfect, who is righteous, who leads with integrity, not just for a short time, but for forever. And this is what is, is said to be happening. This king whose kingdom will never end is coming. What good news. Think about how this must have sounded to Mary. God is finally moving. God is sending the Messiah and he's sending it to, to her. How can this be? Like, I, I imagine she is shocked at this news in some sense. And as we think about this passage, sometimes we need to recognize that the right application for us is to take a moment and soak in the good news that's being proclaimed. Soak in this reality that God has sent his son and who he is and what he's going to do, that we would revel in the reality that this is true, that we now have a king who reigns forever on his throne. And we remember that he is a promise-keeping God that we can trust even when things seem impossible to us. And so as we look down to verses 34 through 35, we see that Mary rightly has a question of Gabriel. As Mary is pondering what the news means, she certainly understands what, what Gabriel's saying, that she's going to have a baby now in her virginity. Not in the future, you know, once she and Joseph, you know, end their betrothal period and finally are united together as husband and wife. She understands that Gabriel is saying a very legitimate, you know, or that she understands what Gabriel's saying and she asks a question. This kind of contrasted with Zechariah's question. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But she says, how is this going to be since I'm a virgin? Contrast that question. Zechariah asked a question last week in verse 18. But he says, how shall I know this? For, for I am an old man. Here she says, how will this be, Lord? She's trying to understand. Zechariah asked it in such a way that he's wanting proof. How do I know that your message is trustworthy, Gabriel? How do I know that you're going to bring about the things that you actually say you're going to do? She says, I don't understand, Lord. Help me understand. So there, there seems to be a difference in her in the question because you see there's a difference in the response from the angel. And I'm confident also that Luke, as a physician, really wanted to understand this as well. How was it that the virgin birth happened? What, what's the spirit going to do? Help me understand this. Like, I don't get this. I want to understand. And so, you know, as she's sharing this, I'm sure it's encouraging to him to think about this. But Gabriel's answer is that Mary will conceive because the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. 
and cause a baby to be born. This isn't like Greek mythology where the gods would come down and and sleep with human women and have their offspring. No, this is the miraculous working of God to cause this child to grow in her womb. It's it's a work totally of, of the Lord. You may be familiar with the talk show host, Larry King. You know, he's on TV for many years. He's famous for doing interviews. He would interview all sorts of interesting people. He spoke with kings and, and politicians. He, he spoke with notorious murderers. He spoke with theologians and actors and just basically anybody that you could think he would want to interview, he did. Something like 50,000 interviews over his lifetime. That's a lot of interviews. And he was asked the question, if you could interview anyone from any point in history, who would you want to interview? And he said, I would want to interview Jesus. But if I interview Jesus, I really just want to know the answer to one question. Were you really virgin born? That's the question he wanted, he wanted Jesus to answer. Because he recognized that the answer to that question changes everything. If, if that is true, it changes the world. So as Christians, we should think hard about this. Why is the virgin birth essential to our Christian faith? Why is it in all of our major creeds and the confessions of the church? And why is it necessary for us to believe this, to be Christians? This isn't just some doctrine that we can agree to disagree about. It's integral to our faith, and it's necessary. So here's a couple of the reasons that it is necessary. The first is this. It shows that salvation had to come from the Lord and not from us, right? There is no other means by which a virgin can give birth. Mary is the first and the only virgin woman who has given birth to a baby. It took God reaching down, supernaturally intervening in time and space, causing what is normally impossible to actually come to be. He is a promise keeper. And he is the one who at the right time moved in such a way to give a savior. Heaven comes down to earth to this lowly and humble servant, Mary, and she eventually holds in her hands the savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 16 and 17. So it teaches us and shows us that salvation had to come from God, not from ourselves. But also the virgin birth shows the the dual natures of Christ. It shows that Jesus is fully human. He was born of a woman. He got tired. He was hungry. He had to sleep. He grew in wisdom and stature and knowledge before God. He was a real man. He was fully human. And yet we also recognize that the virgin birth shows his full divinity on display. For he was conceived in a supernatural way by the Holy Spirit. So this virgin birth highlights both of these. He has a dual nature. It's called the hypostatic union. He's fully God and fully man. And lastly, the other thing we see is this. The virgin birth allowed for Jesus to be fully human without inheriting the sin nature of Adam. Because the reality is all human beings are born into sin. 
because we all inherit the, the sin of Adam, who is our you know, spiritual father in a sense. He passes his sin nature to his descendants. We see this in Romans 5.12. But because Jesus' father is God, he does not inherit the sinful nature that everyone else does. In fact, he will be holy even in the womb. And we see this in Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Jesus being born of a virgin is necessary because without it, Jesus could not be sinless. Without the virgin birth, Jesus would not be able to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14, which says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So why is the virgin birth necessary? Larry King thought the virgin birth was impossible. So he discounts it. But if Jesus was really born of a virgin, and he was, then miracles are true. Then God, the God who has revealed himself in the Bible, is true. And he can do whatever he wants to save his people. You see, if, if Jesus was born of a virgin, then the feeding of the 5,000 men with, with a few loaves and fishes totally makes sense. If Jesus is born of a virgin, we should have no problem that he talks to a storm and it obeys. That a raging sea would be going and he can walk on top of the water and get in a boat. There's no problem for him. If Jesus is born of a virgin, it makes sense that he can command demons to leave someone and they obey. It's logical to believe that he can really heal the sick. He can touch a leper and make them clean and not be infected. He can take someone who was born lame from birth and heal them and cause them to leap for joy. The blind have their sight restored. The deaf can now hear. The dead can be raised to new life. If Jesus is virgin born, and he is, because he is God, it's logical that these things would be true then, that he can set the captives free that he can bring healing to the nations, that he can give a living water that never, ever runs out. And if Jesus is born of a virgin, it, it, it follows that he can raise the dead. You see, if, if Jesus is, is born of a virgin, and again, he is, since he's born of a virgin, there is nothing that's impossible for God, including the raising of Jesus on the third day and the saving of rebel sinners like you and me. God can do that work. We're evidence of him doing that work right now, gathered together, celebrating and worshiping him. See, brothers and sisters, the virgin birth is a miracle that is worth celebrating, worth highlighting, and standing firm on because it proves definitively that Jesus is who he says he is. And so since Jesus is virgin born, he is the most remarkable person who has ever lived, and it's not even close second. This might seem impossible to us, but here we have a physician, an angel, and his very mother, herself telling us that God made a promise and God kept that promise. Therefore, we can trust him even when it seems impossible.
And as we look at verses 36 through 38, we see Mary's response, which is extremely encouraging. You see, Gabriel does give Zechariah a sign. Zechariah says, I just want a sign. Prove it to me that what you're saying is true. And God's like, okay, I'll give you a sign. You're struck mute until, you're, until your son is born, right? And they're like having to write to him and sign all those kinds of things. He gets a sign, all right. It's just not exactly what he expected. But here, Mary doesn't ask for a sign, and yet Gabriel gives her one. He says, namely, that Elizabeth, your relative, is six months pregnant. She who was barren is barren no longer. God has worked miraculously in her. And it follows that if God can give this woman who has passed the time when she could have children a son, he could do it for Mary as well. Just think about it. Think about how remarkable these two women are, Elizabeth and Mary. If you were to pick the two types of women that never give birth, it's them. You know, someone that's a really old woman or a virgin woman, right? The worst possible ones to have babies are these two. And God says, that's exactly who I want to bear the forerunner and the Messiah. These two. But again, God makes a promise and he keeps it. Even when things seem impossible to us. Gabriel tells this declaration, for nothing will be impossible with God. When she asks the question, how? Nothing is impossible with God. Frankly, there's probably never been more hopeful words, or at least not many better hopeful words spoken than these in all of the world. Nothing is impossible with our God. Are there things in your life that seem impossible? If you're not a believer, do you feel like it would be impossible for God to forgive you of, of your sin? All of it? Maybe it feels impossible that the Lord could heal your broken relationships. Maybe it feels impossible that you could have restoration and joy after being heartbroken by loss. Maybe it seems impossible that trust could be rebuilt with someone. Or that your needs could be met, whether financial or otherwise. Maybe it seems impossible that you could actually serve the Lord in the place of passion that you feel like the Lord desires you to, but, but you're not sure how those circumstances could come to be. Because you know the need. In all of these places, and many more, we need to remember what the Bible tells us about our God, that he is the one who can cause a virgin and does to give birth. Our God is the one who can heal the sick and raise the spiritually and physically dead because nothing is impossible with him. There's no grief that the Lord can't heal. There's no sin for which his blood cannot atone. There is no need that you have that he is not able to abundantly provide for. He, he owns everything, everywhere. There's no heart that he can't comfort and console. There's no sinner that he can't save. There's no life that he cannot change, even in a moment, because he is the God who can do whatever he wants. For nothing is impossible with him. If he can cause a virgin to give birth, 
and he did. He can certainly work in and through you for your good and for God's glory. So as you're in the place of waiting, do you trust him? Do you trust that he is able to do whatever he desires to do in your situation to bring about ultimate good? Do you believe him there? Or does it seem impossible to you? See, what really stands out about Mary in these, in these last few verses is her faith in the Lord. For one so young, her response serves as a model to all of us. She sets a great example for us. Where she says she's a servant or a slave of the Lord. In other words, I'm utterly dedicated to you, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you desire, Lord, I'm willing to do. Let it be exactly as you said. I'm sure there were worries in her mind. How's Joseph going to respond when he finds out that I'm, I'm pregnant? Is he going to leave? What are people going to think about her? What are her family going to think about her? What's it going to mean to raise the most precious and wonderful and perfect son of all time? And she has that responsibility? How's that going to work? And yet, she trusts that the Lord who gives her this most precious gift is also able to sustain her and lead her as she needs. She knows that God is the one who keeps his promises and that she can trust him. And this made all the difference for her. She believed him. She knew it was true, and so she followed him. She hears the declaration, and she knows this is, this is an occasion for utter joy. This is what she's been longing for, what all of Israel has been longing for, what all of the world and creation itself has been longing for, the Messiah, to come. She understands what she's heard, and she rejoices, though she doesn't totally understand exactly how God might make it happen. She believes the Lord that he can and more than that, she rejoices in the reality that she gets to be the mom to the Messiah, the hope of Israel and the hope of the world. This is a fulfillment of, of the promises of God. This son is a blessing. In this situation, every intention of the Lord is to show favor and blessing, not just to her, but to the whole world. Praise the Lord that he did this. And so as you consider your own life, if the Lord leads you down paths that seem unfamiliar to you, or maybe just they're paths that you wouldn't have normally chosen, will you trust him as he leads you? Are you willing to trust the Lord as his servant, even if the path is hard, or it means that you will suffer for the sake of Christ? Will you trust him in those places? I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, for we now serve a king who is already seated on his throne, one who both rules now and forever. We serve a king who has sent us his spirit to help us in our weakness, to give us strength and to guide us in truth. Where we need strength and wisdom and leadership, he gives us the spirit to direct us. And so even though the waiting time can be hard, we know that God is currently at work in us and in others, and we can trust him. May our words echo Mary's words here. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, God. See, brothers and sisters, we long for his return. We long to see even those promises that are not yet fulfilled, fulfilled. 
We long to see Christ return, to be with him forever. And we are utterly confident. We can be utterly confident that he will keep every word of what he has said because our God always keeps his promises and nothing is impossible with him. Let's pray. So Father, we we thank you, God, for your word. Your word is good. Soothes our souls, God. It encourages us. It challenges us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you sent your son to be born of a woman, to make a way for all mankind who trust in faith in Jesus to be saved. Thank you, God, that you have done a saving work in us this morning. Those of us who are Christians, thank you, God, that you have sent your son to redeem us. Father, give us faith to trust you now as you lead us and and, and the different things you lead us to, God. And please give us strength to glorify you by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.